Hello and welcome to Homestead Hens and Honey, a beekeeping, chicken keeping and general homesteading podcast. I'm your host Gemma and today for episode 25 I'm continuing my review of The Lives of Bees by Thomas Seeley and I'll be covering chapter 7 of that book as well as you know some homesteading news, some hive updates and a little information about what it means when we talk about bees trying to rob another hive. So first up some homesteading news. Last episode, I talked a bit about bubbles, one of my special needs, um, Cleveland hens, as I call them, who I had in the house due to what I thought originally was worms, but was leaning towards um, heat stress also being a cause. And uh, I really do think that it was a combination of both in the end. Having her in an air conditioned environment had an effect within maybe 48 hours she started to drink a lot less she was eating better I boosted her protein she loved that Uh, she was getting a lot of uh, grublies worms and um, boiled eggs and uh, I also dosed her with panicure which seemed to help even further in terms of firming up her droppings And so because she was doing so well and because I was getting really, really sick and tired of having a stinky chicken in the house, I ended up putting her outside a couple of days ago. I chose to put her out there after dark and um, the next couple of days were supposed to be much cooler than we'd previously been having in terms of weather. So I thought it was the best time. It did work out really well. She integrated immediately that flock is just you know the three of them and they're all very docile so there was no fighting or anything and she had her last dose of panicure yesterday and I also gave a quick dose to Agatha and Squeak who is uh they're the other chickens in that tiny flock just so that no one has worms now hopefully and there's no chance of them just passing it back and forth between them. Panicure is a wormer that is gentle enough on the system that I wasn't worried about doing a preventative dose. So I'm really pleased with how that worked out and fingers crossed I'm not going to see any more issues from her. She has not gone back to drinking huge amounts of water. I've been monitoring her water intake even outside very closely and it is much better. In hindsight, I am really surprised actually that I didn't lose her because she was drinking maybe a gallon of water a day. And if you think that she weighs about five pounds and that water was just coming right out of her and taking tons of nutrients with it, I'm really, really shocked that it didn't end up uh, fatal, honestly. So I'm very, very pleased with how things are going. But this is definitely a lesson to myself and maybe to you guys if you see that the water in a f- in your flock area is going down faster than you would expect um maybe double check that the chickens uh aren't just drinking it maybe sit out there and see if there's a particular chicken who's always hanging around the water bowl and seems to be drinking excessively because apparently that is an early warning sign that one of your girls has heat stress So in other positive news, um, my corn is flowering, which is very exciting. Although I have noticed that not all of them have grown to full height before they did start flowering. And I think I placed them too close together. So one of my plans for next year is to expand that bed to double the size and um, plant the same number of corn, but really spread them out. My tomatoes are fruiting. I haven't had any that are ripe yet, so I'm keeping an eye on them. They are getting very heavy and I don't have the right stakes to support them. So I'm kind of running around trying to get much stronger metal stakes to tie them to. Um, Let's see, what else? I, oh, I did have to get Japanese beetle traps because although the milky spore had a huge impact on their population, it didn't completely get rid of them, which makes sense because a number of my neighbors have Japanese beetle traps up as well, I've noticed. So obviously we all have the issue and it's possible that they're coming from neighborhood yards. So um, I have the traps up. 
they're working great and I am going to do the full application of the milky spore and then possibly even do it again in the spring because I really want to knock out as many as I can and as I think I mentioned before I'm going to be mindful that I also dose the various flower beds and probably choose a day where I can keep the dogs out of the backyard and do the backyard as well. We have a lot less in the back I'm not as convinced there's many lava in the soil there but probably better safe than sorry. So on the 28th of July, it was my birthday and um, I turned 35 and I had a really, really special day. Um, So usually on my birthday, my husband kind of knocks it out of the park with some kind of surprise trip or special adventure. So one of my favorites was he drove me out to Medina and took me to an alpaca farm and we spent like a couple of hours just petting alpaca and feeding alpaca and and meeting llamas and donkeys and all kinds of things and it was absolutely wonderful well because of the pandemic you know we're not really going out as much um, but that didn't affect the day so I had a leisurely breakfast at home reading a good book then I opened my gifts which were wonderful and many of which were bee themed and then I decided that what I really wanted to do was go swimming at our local lake. There's a small beach area. Um, it There's no lifeguard, but it's a relatively popular spot. It's pretty good for swimming. And so we went swimming and it was a beautiful day. It was hot, but not too hot. The sun was shining. I had a great time. After we cleaned up, we went to my favorite coffee shop. I had a free birthday drink that they do there as part of like a rewards program. And then we came home and just hung out and then tried takeout from a restaurant we hadn't tried before. And it's always exciting for me to try restaurants because I eat gluten-free because I have celiac disease. So finding somewhere that can accommodate my diet is really exciting. I had a really delicious um, blackened shrimp gluten-free pasta and I drank way too much (laughs) Um, but it was wonderful and I ended up like dancing around the living room with my whippet chappy and my husband actually took like a sneaky video and I'm really glad he did because the it just makes me laugh every time I see it it's so funny and chappy's face is a picture and it was just incredible I had a really wonderful day and um, I ended up feeling very very blessed for all the people in my life and all my puppies and especially my husband so I was very happy to be turning 35 um, and the weekend before my birthday and birthday my uh, bestie who I have my kind of weekly quarantine dates as we call them threw me an early birthday celebration and it was absolutely wonderful and yes I've been very spoiled and pampered and it's great because I'm really enjoying my 30s I know a lot of women kind of panic I guess when their 30th birthday's coming up but I've actually found my 30s to be really special um you don't care as much about things that aren't important I feel like and you sort of come into your own a lot more plus my 30s is when I discovered beekeeping and got chickens and bought a house and did like big girl things like that so yes 30s is working very well for me and I'm interested to see what's coming in the future now I want to give a couple of hive updates and I'm going to keep it short because I actually don't have a lot to report but before I get into that I did want to talk briefly um, about selling honey in Ohio. So last episode I talked about my first honey harvest and I mentioned that I was kind of surprised by how much honey I got and I was considering selling any that I wasn't going to use or give away to people as presents and that I wasn't entirely sure if I needed anything like a license to sell. So according to the uh, Department of Agriculture for Ohio, um, if a beekeeper jars honey, that there is a minimum of 75% of their own honey, honey from their own hives, you do not have to get a license. But if more than 25% of the honey comes from another beekeeper that you are then bottling yourself, 
you are considered a food processing establishment and you need to register and be inspected by the Division of Food Safety. So basically for all of us who are backyard beekeepers or any kind of production of honey that's from our own hives, we don't need to be licensed, which is great. But regardless of whether you are selling your honey from your home or going out to a market, you do need to have a label on it. And um, the label needs to say the common name of the food product, so honey. It has to have a net quantity of the contents. So that needs to be in ounces if you sell on-site. But if you're selling off-site, so like a farmer's market, it should have ounces and grams. And then a statement of responsibility, which is the name and address of the business. Um, I don't have the full address on my label. I have my town and um, state and some contact information. So hopefully that's enough because I, thinking about it, I'm not sure that I've ever seen a full address on other jars of honey, but I will look into it. So yes, good news. I can go ahead. I can sell honey if I need to, and I don't need a license, which is great. And I'm actually picking up a new order of... um, jars uh, tomorrow because I ran out and I need a lot more because I just extracted another four medium frames so I have quite a lot of honey again okay so other hive news as I said I don't have a huge amount to report um basically the weather was so hot and I was so involved with um, my honey harvest and um, various chicken projects and then my birthday coming up and uh, just life in general that I didn't get out as much as I wanted to which I don't like. So when I finally got out it had been about 14 days so a solid two weeks And my queenless split, which is when I split my Saskatraz hive, I went in and it looks like the queens or a queen has just emerged as there was still a little bit of the queen cells that I could see on the frame that were being broken down. So somewhere in there, hopefully, is a virgin queen. And fingers crossed, after she's gone through her period of like toughening up her exoskeleton and building her flight muscles, she will have a successful mating flight and hopefully returns extremely well mated because I would love it if she does as well as her mum has been doing. Now, when I was in there, I realised that they had run out of brood. So the last of the brood had hatched and it was newly hatched because the nurse bees I found were very very young they had obviously just emerged but that's kind of an oopsie poopsie because I like to keep a fair amount of brood in with the queenless splits because the brood pheromone acts to prevent a worker from eventually laying eggs but also And in some ways, almost more importantly, it helps keep the colony calm and focused. So I don't think it was at a point where they were losing focus or becoming aggressive, but I didn't like the sounds that I was hearing in there. And so one thing I did do is I took a frame of eggs and brood from the mother colony, the Saskatraz queen colony, and I popped that in with them just so that um, they would have brood and so that if those, for whatever reason, the queen doesn't come back or um, let's say that no queens emerged and for whatever reason they had just pulled the cells down, they now have eggs to work with. Uh, My three nucleus colonies, I was able to briefly look in on them Uh, They're doing very well. One colony, uh, Nucleus Colony 2, I am particularly pleased with. Um, She's just been wonderful from the start. Her her laying pattern is beautiful. Her temperament is lovely. And they've been building up very quickly. So I'm really pleased with her. The queen who was small, and I was originally worried about, she's really settled in 
aside from being chunkier now, her brood pattern is lovely. Um, and I'm not concerned about her at all anymore. I'm really pleased with how she's looking. Honestly, all three of those queens are doing a bang up job and I'm very pleased. And now it's kind of an issue of, um, you know, managing the space that they have. I don't want them to get so cramped that they try and swarm. Hopefully that's less likely now because we're in a nectar dearth. Um, but I'm not sure. So I'm going to just have to monitor them and make sure that I kind of move frames around as needed to ensure that they have space. So speaking of the nectar dearth, I actually feel like a bit of an idiot because I didn't realize we were in the dearth until I accidentally triggered robbing behavior in my hives. If you follow me on Instagram, you would have seen a video I shared. It was about a minute long to kind of give you an idea of what it looks like when they're robbing but they're not in like so the the video I'm trying to think about how to phrase this the video I posted shows robbing behavior full stop but it also isn't the worst kind of robbing um it can be incredibly frenzied it can be 10 times more aggressive than what I was showing this was just sort of a they were getting started and thankfully I was able to put an end to it now the thing with this is I can't believe I didn't realize that we were in a dearth because it's been very, very hot. We hadn't had rain for a long time, although thankfully we have this week and it's been lovely. Um, but yeah, I just, I didn't have a clue. And some of it was because I was rushed. So I wasn't paying attention to what the bees were telling me. The bees were louder. They were more defensive. Um, there was a lot more activity. And what happened is the first day when I realized what happened and that I caused robbing behavior I thought it was just because I had accidentally spilled some honey so a frame that I was pulling out they had made a little bit of burr comb attaching it to the wall of the super so this is one of those boxes that I think was made to the wrong measurements and so I've been having burr comb issues with and so when I pulled it out some of the wax pulled away and exposed honey that started dripping down the frame and it was like the world just filled with bees. And I quickly realized what was happening. I closed everything up. I wiped off any honey that was on the outside of the box. And I ended up getting a water sprayer and just spraying all the hives down until they all went back to their colonies. I decided the following day it was cooler. And I thought, you know, we probably were st obviously still in the dearth. But I wanted to see if I could get into a hive, even during the dearth, if I didn't go anywhere near honey frames. And I was able to be in that hive that I looked at for longer, but the robbing behavior picked up again. So everything got closed up. And I realized that I'm just not going to be able to work the hives until I, um, until this dearth is over. And hopefully it won't be that long because Firstly, we just had some rain. So there are flowers that are still in bloom and the rain is going to help um, nectar production. And then also um, we usually have a fall flow. So we get goldenrod in the fall and fall is not that far away now. So I want to talk a little bit about what robbing is. What, what am I talking about exactly when I'm talking about robbing behavior? And for this section, I wanna just quickly quote my sources. So as always, I rely on my, you know, handy dandy library of beekeeping books. And I looked to the Backyard Beekeeper, fourth edition by Kim Flottam, Beekabulary Essentials by Andrew Connor, and Beekeeping for Dummies, fourth edition by Howard Blackiston. Simply put, robbing is when bees steal food from other hives and it usually cause, usually occurs, sorry, during a dearth. And a dearth is when there is just not much or any nectar being produced in your area. So during this time, honeybees become extra sensitive to the scent of nectar and honey and they'll descend upon a weaker hive in an attempt to basically just raid their resources and take all of the honey and nectar they can get their sticky little feet on. Now robbing leads to fighting. The bees that are being robbed become defensive and will fight to the death to protect their hive. 
Meanwhile, the robbing bees will be willing to sting in order to help their sisters break through the guard bees and get to the sweet resources inside the hive. So this causes alarm pheromones to quickly fill the air and then nearby colonies will pick up on these alarm pheromones and they will become defensive as well. They can also then attract more robbers to the hive being robbed and then you have multiple bees from multiple colonies swarming weaker hives. And from what I read, this pheromone can actually travel quite far in the air, causing numerous colonies in your area to respond defensively, which in turn increases the chance that someone or some animal just harmlessly wandering by might get stung because the bees are so frenzied and defensive and aggressive. So if you're a new beekeeper, how can you tell what's normal behaviour versus robbing behavior. To give you an idea, normal behavior, if you're looking at a hive and you're looking at the activity, you're going to see foragers going to and from the hive with purpose. They fly directly in and they fly directly out, up and away. When they're flying back in, they're heavy because they're bringing food back to, or you know, they're bringing water, pollen, or nectar back to the hive and they tend to land quite solidly on the entrance board or sometimes they endearingly miss it and fall into the grass all heavy and logy with food and then climb their way back up. You also see things like orientation flights which I always think look kind of like lazy figure eights being flown sort of gently in front of the hive and the overall appearance is one of activity but it's purposeful and it's calm. For robbing behaviour, the incoming foragers are not weighted down with nectar. They don't fly directly to the entrance, but tend to fly side to side around the hive front or even the side of the hive body as if they're looking for something, as if they're looking for an opportunity to dive in and get the honey. You'll also see fighting at the entrance. Bees will be locked together, tumbling around, falling onto the ground, sometimes even grabbing hold of each other in the air, and their bodies will be curled up and they'll be trying to sting each other. It's very noticeable when you see bees fighting like this. One key point as well is that robbing bees leave the hives heavy, and this gives a very distinctive dip in their flight once they take off. I also read that robber bees will not usually leave from the landing board directly, perhaps because of all the fighting, but instead they'll climb up the hive a little bit before taking off. You'll see that dip from the weight of them and then they'll fly away. And overall, the feeling is very chaotic. There's fighting everywhere, very loud buzzing. Uh, Bees are almost swarming the hive and clearly looking for a way in and it's just very all over the place and it it really does feel like chaos. In terms of preventing robbing behavior some things that you can do are you can reduce the entrance on weak colonies and don't place them too close to stronger ones because you when you open up that hive and the smell of all their food stores goes into the air, you don't want it to be close enough that a stronger colony who might consider robbing smells that and comes on over. Don't use open feeders. I don't like front feeders either. Uh, You know, don't place like, uh, like a bird bath full of nectar out, or sugar water, sorry, out during a dearth too close to the colonies because you're just going to cause robbing. Same for those front-facing feeders. If you do have to feed, do it inside the colony. So I've talked about my feeders before. They go on top of the inner cover. I then put an empty super on tops and then I put the lid on. That's the best way to do it in my opinion. Don't work colonies during a dearth. Um, You're just going to be getting that smell all around your apiary and you're going to get all the bees worked up and they're going to want to rob. If you have to remove burr comb, don't just throw it on the ground near your colonies. This is a big mistake that I have made and that I did make that first day. You need to pop it somewhere, uh, preferably an airtight container and dispose of it away from the colonies. If you're out there harvesting for honey, uh, which I did as well, then you really need to make sure that you move the frames into an airtight container. This was a mistake that I made. I did what I did earlier in the 
summer. I took the frames, I moved them what I thought was far away enough from the colonies. It was not. The bees were going bonkers on them. It was absolute madness. If you need to remove the whole super, place them on a solid base and then cover them tightly. You basically don't want any chance that the bees can get back into that super. Uh, something I thought was very interesting is Kim Flottam suggests that you go out the day before, well, preferably the evening before you plan to work on the hives and you break the seals on all the lids and boxes that you intend to work. So what this does is you've broken the seals and if there's any burr comb, you've also broken that. So if there's going to be honey to be spilled, it's going to happen then. Overnight, the bees will clean all that up. So when you come back the next day, they won't have had a chance to reseal anything with propolis. So you you can more quickly get in there. But any very strong smells of, you know, oozing honey or fresh wax has mostly dissipated and it will help decrease the chance that nearby colonies will smell the exposed honey. And then, of course, there's robbing screens. And these go on the front of the hive over the entrance. And they're basically designed so that they redirect the bees that are leaving upwards. Whereas robber bees, they're attracted to the airflow that's coming from the entrance. And they remain low because that smell is so overpowering to them that they just hover where they can smell it strongest. And they don't go up and over the screen to enter into the hive. I'm also going to assume that that kind of up and over maneuver probably makes it easier for guard bees to defend the hive as well. In terms of stopping robbing behavior, so let's say you go out, your hive is being robbed, or you see that robbing behavior is beginning, what can you do? So the first thing you can do is close up all the entrances of the hives. You don't need to use an entrance reducer if you don't have one. You can just grab handfuls of grass and just stuff it into the entrance. You just want to close up that as much as possible. Uh, Something that Kim Flotsam suggested in his book, which I thought was very cunning, is if you can identify which of the hives that you have are doing the robbing, go to those hives and take off their covers. So you're exposing that top box to the air because then those robber bees will switch from going to other colonies and stealing to, oh no, our home is exposed. We need to go home and defend the hive. Now, I thought this was a very cunning idea, but personally, this would be a last resort for me because A, I'd have to be absolutely convinced I knew which hive was doing the stealing And B, I don't want to risk any of my hives, if possible. It would have to be an exceptionally strong hive for me to feel comfortable doing this. But I thought it was worth mentioning because it's very cunning and I could see why it would work. So two of the most popular ways to just stop robbing behavior in its tracks are grabbing a sheet, like a a bed sheet, throwing it over the hive that's being robbed and just soaking it down. You want it to be wet and you want the sheet to hang down past the entrance of the hive. Or you can spray the hives with water, which is what I did. And even better, if you have a sprinkler, set your sprinkler up to just dose down all the hives. The bees will think it's raining. And after a short time, they will return to their own hives and calm down. So that's basically robbing behavior in a nutshell. I hope it's helpful to some of you. And I also hope that my mistakes are helping you not make the same one. So, you know, I always like to be upfront about things that I do wrong because it's a learning experience and I'd like to save other people from doing them. So in terms of the mistakes that I made, the first was just not really paying enough attention to what was happening in the natural environment. If I'd really thought about it, I would have realized that the flow had ended and we were in a dearth. Um, I'm still learning a lot of those environmental cues. It's the hardest part of beekeeping for me is actually learning what plants are in bloom when, learning to identify various blooming parts and really kind of getting a feel for the nectar flow throughout the year. So yes, that was a mistake, but eh, I'm kind of giving myself a little bit of a break on that one because I think it's going to get better with a lot of experience. The other mistake I made was that I was in the hives for too long when I had spilled honey. I was removing honey frames and I was not putting them in sealed 
containers and I wasn't paying attention to what was happening with them. I just assumed it was like what was happening before. If I'd paid attention, I would have seen that the bees were swarming those frames and in a frenzy. So really, yeah, those are really the three things. I wasn't paying attention to whether we were in a dearth. I spilled honey in a hive and I wasn't paying attention to what was happening with my honey frames that I'd extracted from the hives and I didn't put them in a sealed container. So don't be me, don't make those mistakes. And if you do, you're not alone. Now the next bit is the main part of the podcast. I'm continuing my Lives of Bees book by Thomas Seeley. Um, This is chapter seven, which is about colony reproduction. I did originally intend to do chapter eight as well, but honestly, my brain just started melting out of my ears for some reason. Um, I think I said before, but trying to condense this scientific information and mathematics into what I feel is accessible, kind of common speak is challenging and as someone who hasn't been in math class or biology class for a long time it makes my brain hurt it's kind of like having this big soggy muscle that I just haven't used enough and now I'm just asking it to like weight lift and it can't do it so I apologize for that I'm going to try really hard to do two chapters next time around but this time we're just doing chapter seven colony reproduction As always, the chapter opens with a quote, and this quote is by George C. Williams from his book Adaptation and Natural Selection, which was published originally in 1966, and it says, an individual is fit if its adaptations are such as to make it likely to contribute a more than average number of genes to future generations. The chapter opens with a comparison between the reproduction of apple trees and honeybee colonies both produce male and female units of reproduction. So that would be the queens and the seeds versus the drones, which would be the pollen. Both send out their females within a large structure, the apple with the seeds tucked safely inside it and the queen bee leaving her old colony in a swarm of around 10,000 bees. Similarly, both invest less into the male units. Both pollen and drones leave their home completely unprotected. Just as a colony will produce only a few swarms each year, but thousands of drones, the apple tree produces far less fruits than the millions of pollen particles. This comparison will become a bit more clear later in the chapter. So to begin, Seeley reminds us that colony reproduction has usually been approached from an agricultural viewpoint, i.e. one that's aimed at maximising honey production in our managed colonies. This often entails actively trying to prevent colony reproduction through the natural process of swarming. None of us really want our bees to just go away where we can't access them. It cuts down our workforce, it cuts down our honey production. And how we tend to manage our colonies also limits drone production to some extent as we prioritise worker cell production over drone. So if you're using foundation in your frames, for instance, that foundation print on it, those are sized to worker cells, not to drone cells. For this reason, Seeley looked to wild colonies to see how they regulate their production of swarms and drones throughout the year. This section is entitled Drone Production Peaks Before Queen Production. A study by Robert E. Page Jr. in Davis, California, examined 13 colonies and demonstrated that drone production peaks early in the spring, usually around early April, while swarm production peaks 30 days later in early May. And this makes sense if you consider both the biology of drones and the process of queen mating. So first, drones take 24 days to emerge from their cell and then require another 12 plus days to reach sexual maturity. And this period fits nicely within that 30 day give or take window before swarming season peaks. Second, knowing that a queen bee will mate during a fixed period of time before spending the rest of her life laying eggs, it makes sense that maximum drone production would be beneficial before swarming season, as this dramatically increases the number of drones available for mating and thus maximises genetic diversity. 
two studies looked at how much drone comb is made by colonies that are left unmanaged. The study by Robert E. Page that I just referenced and one by Michael L. Smith et al. in Ithaca. Page measured the area of capped drone comb, whereas Smith measured areas of drone comb that contained all stages of life, so from the egg through to capping. Page's 13 colonies consisted of 10 frame Langstroth boxes, each containing two frames of drone comb, whereas Smith studied four colonies in observation hives that had natural comb they'd made the previous year. Both studies had very similar results. Over a summer, the average number of drones produced was 7,812, as recorded by Page, and 6,949, as recorded by Smith. These two numbers will be important for later in the chapter, and we're going to revisit them. Drone comb serves two primary purposes within a colony, the rearing of drones and then honey storage. In the fall, drone comb is shifted as being an area of brood production and is used almost exclusively for honey storage. By spring, this can mean that these cells are potentially still full of honey when the colony needs to start raising drones. As a result, it's been noted that colonies will preferentially remove honey from drone comb in the spring. This was demonstrated in a study by Michael L. Smith, where frames of drone and worker cells were pre-filled with a thick sugar syrup and placed within hives each month from April through to September. In the spring months, the average area cleared of syrup was larger for drone comb than worker. In late summer and early fall, little syrup was removed from the drone comb as as drone production was no longer a priority, honey storage was instead. This next section is entitled Queen Production and Swarming. And it opens with a quick rundown of queen production within a colony. So in the spring, a colony builds its population of worker bees and begins to create queen cups, which Seeley describes as tiny inverted bowls made of beeswax. The queen lays upwards of a dozen fertilised eggs within these special cells, which are then drawn out by the workers into the distinctive queen cells that are positioned vertically on the frame and look a little bit like a monkey nut that you've just smushed into the wax. The larvae within are fed royal jelly and will emerge as virgin queens within 16 days. While these new queens are developing, the original or mother queen is going through her own physiological changes. The workers start to feed her less over time, which causes her egg production to decline and eventually cease, and her abdomen in response decreases in size. The workers will also grab hold of the queen and shake her violently, which appears to keep her moving throughout the day. So they're basically forcing her to exercise. And all of this results in the queen losing about 25% of her original body weight. Not long after the first queen cell is capped, the mother queen leaves the colony with around 10 to 20,000 workers in a swarm. Once a suitable nest cavity has been found, the swarm will follow the scout bees to this location, which is rarely less than 300 metres, about 1,000 feet from the bees' original residence, and can be 3,000 or more metres, more than two miles away. On average, the first virgin queen will emerge eight days after the prime swarm has departed. So the prime swarm is the swarm with the mother queen. If the original colony was greatly weakened by the swarm's departure, the workers will allow the first emerging virgin queen to seek out and kill her sisters. If, however, the colony has maintained or even returned to full strength, workers will guard the remaining queen cells from destruction, exercise the first queen to emerge and then depart with her as an after swarm. Whether a colony produces after swarms depends entirely on its population of workers and brood. A number of studies have been conducted on swarming behaviour, including the production of these afterswarms. From these, most notably a study conducted by David C. Gilly and David R. Tarpey, we learn that the probability that a colony that has already produced a prime swarm will then have an afterswarm is 0.7%, which is 70%. The probability that there will be a second afterswarm is 0.60 or 60%, and the probability that a third daughter queen will then remain in the original nest is 1% or 100%. And for more information on that, that is page 164 in the book. In terms of survivability, 
the daughter queen who inherits the original nest with all of the rich resources of pre-made beeswax comb and food stores has a much higher rate of winter survival at about 81%. For all the queens that left the colony, including the mother queen, their winter survival is dramatically less, usually 20% or lower. Looking at these statistics, Seeley asked himself, why would a mother queen risk leaving the colony to face possible death over winter? And it's his belief that it's due to the high probability that she would be killed if she remained in the colony with the newly emerging daughter queens. And keep in mind, as a beekeeper, we're thinking, because this is what I'm thinking, well, she could just stay and not let any daughter queens emerge. But remember producing additional queens and swarming that's the primary form of reproduction for the colony as an organism the organism is not going to choose not to reproduce we humans are unique in that we make that decision the colony will always reproduce if they have the resources to do so so what Celia is saying that knowing that they're always going to reproduce they're always going to produce daughter queens if the mother queen hangs around the chances of her dying being killed by one of her daughters is very high a study conducted by gilly tarpey and m delia allen in aberdeen scotland uh in the 1950s demonstrated that a colony will usually have one virgin queen depart in a prime swarm one um i'm sorry one virgin queen depart in an after swarm one virgin queen inheriting the original colony and 5.3 virgin queens killed by their sisters so to quote Seeley, clearly the mother queen does well to flee the killing field of her old nest before her murderous daughter queens emerge from their cells next section is entitled how a population of wild colonies is persisting In chapter two, we learned that the population of wild honeybees within the Arno forest, which is the area of study that the author is working with, has been relatively stable since they developed resistance to the varroa mite. And we've since read about how weather, forage, colony buildup, wax production and swarming all directly affect survival rates. In this section, Seeley details two long-term studies that he conducted from 1974 to 1977 and then 2010 to 2016 on colony generation, aka swarming, and colony loss. For these studies, Seeley worked with simulated wild colonies that we're going to abbreviate as SWCs that had been set up in movable frame hives, as well as wild colonies located in natural nesting sites. 20 SWCs were established in individual secluded areas using 10 frame Langstroth hives. Swarms were then captured and housed within these SWCs. Each hive contained two frames of drone comb and eight of worker, and the entrance was reduced to a small natural-sized opening. The queens were labelled in order to track them as they swarmed or were superseded, etc. Colonies were inspected in early May, late July and late September, before and after the primary swarming season for the area. The main focus of these inspections was to assess whether the mother queen had swarmed and to check the colonies for disease. The wild colonies used for this study were located by Seeley directly via bee lining or by others who'd been told that he was looking for trees occupied by honeybees. Once colonies were located, Seeley visited them on the same schedule as he did the SWCs and he would just note whether the colony was still alive. He also tracked whether a nest that had been empty due to colony death had since been repopulated by a swarm. 42 nest sites were ultimately examined, 26 were in trees and 16 were in rural buildings such as barns, cabins, etc. from 1974 to 1977. And for the later study from 2010 to 2016, 33 sites were monitored, 20 in trees and 13 in rural buildings. Both studies yielded similar findings about colony survival and reproduction. These results are summarised best in a table that I'm going to post on my website, but a few key points about these results. 
In regards to whether a colony will swarm, the probability is much higher, about 87%, than the possibility that it will not, which is a mere 13%. In a similar vein, the probability that the mother queen will leave with this first swarm is 100%, as is the probability that a daughter queen will inherit the original nest. There is then a 70% chance that a daughter queen will leave in an after swarm and a 60% chance that a second daughter queen will leave in another after swarm. The survival rate of the prime swarm is 23% compared to an 81% survival rate of the daughter queen that remains in the nest and a mere 12% for the after swarms with daughter queens. So Celia identifies two key points from these results. Although 87% of wild colonies will swarm, even producing multiple swarms in one season, the overall growth rate of colony population is low. Just 0.14 or 14% of new colonies are added to the overall population each year. This rate appears to be sufficient to replace any losses caused by poor forage or hard winters. Secondly, the population appears to be at carrying capacity, aka at the maximum sustainable population. How long is a bee tree alive with bees? This section looks at how long a nest cavity will be continuously inhabited by honeybees. Seeley calculated the average lifespan of a nesting site using the results from previously discussed studies. Assuming that each site was founded by a prime swarm, that nest site's probability of survival to one year of age is 23%. For each year after that, he added 81%, the survival rate for an established colony, aka one that has already survived its first winter. Based on these calculations, the average occupation of a bee tree as a nest is a mere 1.7 years. This low number reflects the fact that newly swarmed colonies have such a low survival rate their first winter, just 23%. In contrast, Seeley learned that a colony that survived its first winter will likely occupy that nest site for another 5.2 years. During a six-year study, 2010 to 2016, of 33 nest sites, Eight of those sites were occupied for all six years, with one site having a seven-year record of continuous occupation as of May 2017. The next section is investment ratio between drones and queens. And to quote Thomas Seeley, the most striking feature of the reproductive biology of honeybees is their astonishingly skewed sex ratio. As discussed earlier in the chapter, a wild colony will, on average, produce 7,500 drones each year compared to 2.3 swarms. So that's one primary swarm and 1.3 after swarms. Despite this vast disparity in male and female reproduction, Seeley notes that evolutionary theory predicts an equal allocation of resources to male and female production, since half the genes come from the male units and half from female units. This means that each sex functions equally as a means to genetic success. So when we see 7,500 drones versus 2.3 swarms, it initially appears that honeybee colonies defy this prediction. However, to truly assess this apparent disparity, one has to look at a colony's total reproductive investment in its reproductive males and females. So for drones, we can examine how resources are utilized to produce and support drones throughout their lives. For females, slash queens, allocation of resources is far more complex. Seeley suggests that one should calculate a colony's total expenditure of resources on queens by taking into account every aspect that leads to the production of a swarm. This takes us back to the opening chapter's comparison of honeybees to apple trees, how each sends forth the female unit protected within a complex structure, swarms for bees, apple fruit for seeds. Silly then narrows this look at resources spent by assessing the dry weight of the bees that the colony produces for both drones and for swarms. Using previous studies on the average number of drones produced in a year, 
and the average dry weight of a drone, which is about 45 milligrams, Seeley calculates that the average total investment of a colony each year is 332 grams or 11.7 ounces of dried drones. To calculate the dry weight of a swarm, Seeley looks at the average number of workers produced over a summer, which is 23,000 and 24 and the average dry weight of a worker which is just 17 milligrams multiplying these two figures together to get an average colony investment of 391 grams or 13.8 ounces of dried workers so looking at these figures 332 grams versus 391 grams we can see that they are roughly equal Seeley also proposes that calculating the cost of fueling workers and drones would yield similar results. Although drones will be fed throughout their lifespan by their sisters, the workers that will swarm will eat less right until they swarm, where they gorge themselves on as much honey as they can eat. It is Seeley's suspicion that if we examined the amount of food consumed by weight for each sex, it would end up being approximate. Next, we look at something called the optimal swarm fraction. This section looks at how natural selection has affected the percentage of a colony's workforce that leaves with the prime swarm. And this is called the swarm fraction here. This aspect of colony life is of particular interest because it's not manipulated by beekeepers. It's an innate part of honeybee biology and thus it's under their total control. Knowing as we do that the swarm's workforce will face the energy intensive task of building comb for its new home, we could assume that a swarm needs a large amount of workers to succeed. But the question is, what percentage of the colony population is optimal? What's going to maximise genetic success? To answer this question, Seeley used previous studies on the subject to come up with a mathematical model that would allow one to calculate the optimal swarm factor of a colony using three key measurable factors. He then compared these results to observations of wild honeybee colonies. The purpose being to demonstrate whether this mathematical model yields an accurate result. This next section looks rather scarily like my old algebra textbooks. So I'm going to do my best to sum up the model slash formula that he used. And to start, let's talk about the three key factors he identified to be used within the mathematical model. The first is genetic relatedness of a worker to the offspring of each queen. The second is winter survival probability of each colony, mother and sister, if X amount of workers leave with the mother queen. The, and then the third is the expected reproductive success of each colony if X amount of workers depart with the mother queen. In this, mo in this model, X is called the swarm fraction. It refers only to the adult workers of a colony because nurse bees would have no use for a swarm as they cannot fly yet and they wouldn't leave the brood. To determine the winter survivable probability for the mother and sister queen colonies, Seeley started with 15 colonies in June of 2008, from which he produced an artificial swarm or split from each. The mother queen and some portion of workers was removed in each swarm. And the portion of workers was split into three groups, he either took 90%, 60% or 30% with five colonies for each group. So five colonies had 90% of the workforce removed for the swarm, five had 60% and five had 30. Each swarm was placed in a 10 frame Langstroth hive with empty frames. So they'd have to build their own wax just as they would have to in the wild. And colonies were checked once a month from July 2008 to April 2009, purely to see if they were still alive. There's a lot more eye-crossing math that happens here, but I'm going to do my best to sum it up by saying that the model's results demonstrated that a colony's optimal swarm fraction is between 0.76 to 0.77, aka 76% to 77% of workers leaving the colony with the mother queen yields the greatest success. When wild colonies are observed, this optimal swarm fraction comes to 0.72 or 72%. 
And this closeness in results demonstrates that worker bees are indeed maximizing their genetic success by preferring to leave with the mother queen rather than stay with the sister queen. And that the mathematical model that Seeley came up with is indeed an accurate way to assess the swarm fraction of a colony. It makes sense that natural selection would favour a large percentage of workers leaving because they do face that daunting task of building comb and then helping shore up the numbers before winter arrives. The next section is called wild mating. Honeybee mating habits have been known since the 1950s when researchers realised that virgin queens do not have chance meetings with drones, but instead are travelling to drone congregation areas, which are often 30 to 60 foot in the air. Drones arrive at these areas first, circling each site and basically just waiting until a virgin queen comes by. The virgin queen flies alone without any workers to support her. And just a quick note here, I think I have erroneously said in the past that virgin queens leave with workers and I was dead wrong. So I apologize if I misled anyone. Virgin queens fly purely alone. And because of this, they are vulnerable to predation. Perhaps because of this vulnerability, most queens in the wild will take one mating flight, pairing with an average of 10 to 20 drones in that time. Study of these drone congregation areas indicates that their location remains consistent from one season to the next. So one location in the Austrian Alps has actually persisted since the 1960s. Both queens and drones will fly long distances to reach these drone congregation areas. Studies have indicated that queens fly an average of 1.2 to 1.9 miles from their hive to mate, with drones flying an average of 3 to 4.2 miles. Seeley references a study conducted in the Austrian Alps by Friedrich and Hans Rutner that worked with 19 apiaries where they captured drones and they marked them with a specific colour to represent each apiary. They then captured drones at known congregation areas and identified which hives they came from, thus being able to work out how far the drones had flown from their home base. For the two congregation areas they studied, the average flight distance was 1.9 miles and 1.4 miles respectively. These numbers line up with another study on drone flight distance which was conducted in Canada by Donald F. Peer in the 1950s. The area he chose for his study had no honeybee colonies, but those that he brought in and established himself. He set up 20 colonies with drones that had the Cordovan allele, 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 I think, allele, which is um, the Cordovan allele is a recessive color mutation, as well as mating nuclei that contained only workers and a virgin queen. And the queen was homozygous for the Cordovan mutation. These mating nuclei were placed at sites away from the drone producing colonies and he positioned them at varying distances. 22 queens were placed more than 12 to 14 miles from the colonies and none of those queens were mated. Those queens that were placed 10 miles or less away did mate successfully and exclusively with drones carrying the Cordovan allele, so those in the study group. But bear in mind that the nature of this study means that these results indicate maximum range, not typical or average range. However, the sheer distance traveled by drones indicates that outbreeding is clearly the norm for honeybees. And by outbreeding here, we mean outside their genetic line or traveling long distance to find genetic, genetically diverse queens to be mating with. The next question Celie asks is, is polyandry weaker in the wild? So a little, uh, I always said termination corner, but that doesn't make any sense. Terminology corner is what I mean. Polyandry is basically when there is a single female mating with multiple males. And what's interesting about polyandry is that it's not common among insects, but is seen in all species of honeybees. And this leads to the question of how was it discovered that a single queen mates with multiple drones? What methods were used to assess the genetic diversity of bees within a colony? 
So basically, scientists studied the heritable genes of worker bees, identifying the genotypes in order to assess how many sperm donors would have been needed to explain the genetic diversity of these results. And from these studies, it's known that queens will mate with an average of 12 drones. So then Celia asked the question, why are queen bees so promiscuous? And keep in mind, promiscuous here is a scientific term being used to simply mean why does she mate with so many different males it has no judgment applied to it like we sadly do when we're talking about people (laughs) so Celia asks why are queen bees mating with so many drones well the first thing we know is that it's not an issue of just sperm volume because we know from studies that queens typically store about five million sperm and also that the typical ejaculate of a single drone contains 10 million sperm So if it was just an issue of she needs a certain amount of sperm, she could get that from one drone. And considering that during one mating flight, she could receive as as many as 100 million sperm or even more, we know then that this is definitely an issue of genetic diversity. Particularly because the 5 million sperm that the queen does keep is a completely randomized mix of all the different sperm received. Genetic diversity within a colony can lead to such things as improved resistance to disease, enhanced food acquisition, better temperature stability of the brood nest, etc. So clearly genetic diversity gives big gains to colonies. Historically, studies that looked at the genetic diversity of a honeybee colony used colonies managed by beekeepers. And Seeley wondered if the level of diversity would be reflected in wild colonies where we had nothing to do with it, especially considering the increased distance and lower population that we know exists between unmanaged colonies in the wild. To answer his question, Seeley worked with David R. Tarpey and Deborah Delaney to determine the mating frequencies of queens within the study area of the Arno Forest. In August 2011, Seeley and one of his students located 10 colonies living within bee trees and collected 100 workers from each of these colonies. They also collected an equal sample number from the 20 managed colonies within the study area to use as a comparison. These managed colonies belong to a commercial beekeeper who bought his queens from a queen producer in California, making these genes distinctive and easy to identify within the samples. Looking at the paternal genes of the workers from all 30 of these colonies, so from the managed colonies and from the wild colonies, there was no significant difference in number of fathers. The two managed apiaries, which had 10 colonies each, had an average of 19.8 drones and 16.6 drones, which is not statistically distinguishable from the wild colonies that had an average result of 15.9 drones. And that is uh, per mating. This indicates that even in areas where colonies are fewer and more widely spaced out, queens do not mate with less drones than in managed apiaries where the queens and the colonies are kept much closer together. And knowing as we now do that both drones and queens will fly quite long distance to reach drone congregation areas, this result is not entirely surprising. In fact, it seems like that it seems likely that natural selection favoured those bees that flew long distance to mate, thereby increasing genetic diversity in offspring. And that's the end of the chapter. Apologies for stumbling over some of my words there. Um, It is late in the afternoon and I am tired. (laughs) I hope that was clear, particularly the mathematical parts. As always, you can reach out to me either here on my website or on any of my social media accounts if you have questions or corrections or you just want to say hello. As always, I really appreciate you guys listening or reading along, sticking with me. Um, I hope that this is a benefit for you. I found this particularly interesting, um, particularly the section about the disparity between drone production versus queen production, but how the resources used are basically equal. I thought that was very interesting. And I think this chapter was especially uh, timely for me because I have had 
some level of queen rearing going on in my colonies this year and so it's just really exciting to kind of see the science of what's been going on with my sweet little bees. So for those of you out there who are also in a dearth right now, um, just remember, don't go in your colonies unless you really have to. When you are in there, have a look at what's going on in terms of their food storage. Don't take too much honey if you're not one of the areas that has a full flow. And it's okay to feed if you really need to shore up a weak colony, but please do that with an internal feeder. I do not recommend putting on a front feeder or just having sugar syrup out right now. Um, You can find me on Facebook, Instagram. My website will be linked in the episode description. As always, I will have a rundown of everything discussed and I will also have the photos from the book with rather handy dandy little graphs that show all of the results that we discussed in this chapter today. And I do recommend having a look at them because it really sums up the information in a very easily absorbable way. So, all things going well, I'm really, really trying to finish this book. So my plan is that my next episode will be two chapters and then the following episode will be the last two chapters. So we're almost there, four chapters to go and then we're all done with this book. And I'm going to move on to another one and that's going to be about top bar beekeeping because aside from being of interest to me, I received a top bar hive for my birthday. I need to put it together um, and I won't really be using it until next year but obviously I'm all excited about it now and I want to talk about it and when we get there I'm also going to do a giveaway for a top bar hive book that I have an extra copy of that could be of use to one of you. So as always I hope you're staying safe, I hope you're staying healthy, self-isolated and that you're wearing your masks. Please, please wear your masks and make sure they cover your nose and fit as closely to your face as possible. Um, That is the safest way to wear them and also make sure that you're washing them between use. As always thank you for listening and please remember to hug your hens and then wash your hands. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.